Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. I continue to do the accent parts because I was a fan of Peter Sellers and I love doing accents and I did Indian characters and I did Iranian characters. I did Arab characters. I did all kinds of characters trying my best to do the accent correctly. But now 20 something years in and the world we're living in, I'm trying to do less parts that require an accent and more parts that will allow me to be me. And sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But then stand-up is also interesting because stand-up allows you to go do the terrorist part in the Chuck Norris movie of the week that I did and then go on stage and make fun of it. It allows you to call them out on it, on creating these parts, and then also make fun of yourself for agreeing to do these parts. So that's the beauty of stand-up. You can say whatever you want. My name is Maz Jobrani, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Roman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to Maz Jabrani, a comedian, actor, entertainer that I've been wanting to talk to for a really long time. (laughs) Stick around because later in the episode, we've got a very special message about COVID prevention from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Maz happens to be Persian, but he most definitely identifies with being an immigrant. His list of work is long. He's been on TV shows and movies that you've probably seen or heard of, the CBS comedy Superior Donuts. He's made appearances on Grey's Anatomy, Curb Your Enthusiasm, Better Off Ted, Last Man Standing, and Shameless. He's a regular guest on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert and The Late Late Show with James Corden. He has done a lot of independent films. He has many stand-up specials, one of which is Immigrant, which is on Netflix, which was filmed at the prestigious Kennedy Center. And he actually opened the show at the Kennedy Center doing some Arab dancing to Public Enemy, which I'm not sure has ever been done at the Kennedy Center. We'll have to link Um, that in the show notes. Yeah. He's performed at the White House and has had the privilege of introducing Michelle Obama. His latest stand-up special is Pandemic Warrior on NBC's Peacock TV streaming service. He's given not one, but two TED Talks, none of that TEDx stuff. And my wife wanted to make sure that we all knew that Maz is also a frequent guest on NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Maz is also the host of his own podcast, Back to School with Maz Jabrani, which isn't just a comedian's podcast. It's like this intellectually curious conversation with thought leaders about stuff that not just Maz, but his kids want the answers to. I, I've known about Maz for years from Friend of the Pod, Rajiv introduced me to him when I started to get up into stand-up comedy years ago. And I, I've just really been wanting to talk to him. One of the reasons we do this podcast is talk to people we've been admiring for years. So I don't know. That's a long bio, Sharon. <laughs> what do you think of Maz? I think we got a version of Maz today that was thoughtful and empathetic and really rich in terms of him sharing his own personal experiences. And I love conversations like that. Like I think what's always interesting to me is we watch people on stage when they're performing or we watch them make an amazing TED Talk. And then we sit down and we really get to know someone. And it, it always 
I love those the most because people just show up in a way that always surprises me. And it felt like, it felt like we were having tea with a really good friend today. And he just looks at the world in, in such an amazing and, and intellectually curious way. And just very matter of fact, you know, but I, I love conversations like that because I feel like I walk away feeling energized and inspired from those. Yeah. So we hope you'll enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Maz Jobrani. Maz, so excited to have you on the show. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. How are you? What's going on? What's what's the word? <laughs> well, the word is that people know you. You're famous slash infamous, but maybe what they don't know is actually if they know you, they should know this, but where are you from? And more importantly, how do you answer the second question of where are you really from? <laughs> no, I always say where I'm from. I don't dilly dally about it. I just go right to where I'm from, which is I was born in Iran and I left when I was six. And then I grew up in Northern California. It's funny. I have an almost six-year-old and she is a chatterbox. She's there. She's interacting with the world. But I think of like, how much of this is she remembering? What of this is she going to remember? Because my first memories are like three or four. Do you have any stories of those early years coming over or being in Iran? I would assume you left at the time when a lot of Iranians were leaving. Yeah, we were in Iran and we left there late 1978. There was protests in yep. the streets of Iran against the Shah at the time. And they were escalating. And my father was on business in New York. And he told my mom, why don't you bring me and my older sister? It was during our winter break and there'd been blackouts. I think the blackouts were due to the protests. But he said, why don't you bring the kids out for a couple of weeks? Things will die down a little bit and then you guys can go back. And we came out and the protests actually escalated more and more. And it got to the point where we never went back. So I always say we packed for two weeks and we stayed for 40 Wow. What is it? 43 years now? 1979 was when the revolution happened? Yeah. Yeah. And what? I got to ask, like, as a little kid, what were you like? Damn it. Yeah. I left my Luke Skywalker figure. Right. Well, right. I left my brother there. We had my baby brother oh my back God. there. Yeah. We, we thought because we thought we're coming back. So he was very dear to me and he was the baby. And I remember kissing his shoes as I was leaving in the middle of the night to go to the airport. And then uh, obviously family, grandmothers, just at the time as a kid in Iran, listen, I knew Iran pre-revolution. So it was a beautiful, colorful place for me. I had a lot of comic books like Spider-Man and Batman and that kind of stuff. Yeah. I remember seeing the movie Rocky in Iran mm. when I, mean, I was too young probably to see it, but I saw it. And as a matter of fact, for just last year, I happened to be doing stand-up at the Laugh Factory and Sylvester Stallone was in the audience. And I went up to him after my set and I shook his hand. I said, hey, man, your movie was the first movie I ever saw 40-something years ago wow. in Iran. And he's like, oh, really? Like, yeah. <laughs> That's great. And were you school-aged when you came over to the U.S.? Yeah, so I was six years old. So in Iran, I went to an international school and the school had, it was the first, whatever it was, I think it was probably like preschool and kindergarten yeah. were all in English. Oh. So I was learning English back there. And then yeah. by the first grade, it was half the day English, half the day Persian. And so I got into first grade and that's when we left middle of first grade. So I never really learned how to read and write in Farsi. And it wasn't later until later in college when I started taking some courses. And actually, I took some courses before because my parents wanted me to learn to read and write. But even to this day, my reading and writing is pretty remedial. The only time I get to practice my reading is when I have people from Iran write me on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, and then I'll read it. And, and it's funny because I kind of tiptoe in because sometimes they're fans and they'll say nice things and sometimes they hate me and so i'll start reading oh, no. it and they'll be like maz jobrani you mother and i'm like okay i'm gonna <laughs> stop reading this 
<laughs> but uh, you're getting better at the curse words that you probably didn't learn as a, as a youngster. So well, you know, my speaking is my speaking is fluent. I speak Persian fluently because I grew, okay, grew up. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I grew up in in Marin. Growing up, my both my parents were much more comfortable speaking in Persian. Mm-hmm. My grandparents at times would live with us, and so my my speaking is fluent. I mean, to the point where I have Iranian fans who will say, "Hey, why don't you do shows in Persian?" And oh, I wow. will say, mm-hmm. "Well." I speak it fluently. I could do an interview fluently. I could do a podcast fluently Persian, not a problem. But if I try to do comedy, comedy has its own rhythms yeah. and its own nuances. And and you really need to have a command of the language. And I don't have that big of a command of the language. I speak it fine, but I, yeah. not, not to the point. You're just not comedy. as funny in Persian. Exactly. Oh, jeez, you're fired, <laughs> Sherry. There was a there was a book. There was a book back like a while back by my friend Firuze Dumas. It was called Funny and Farsi, and it's all about how her family came to Newport Beach in the mid '70s, and they were the only Iranian family there, and how they stood out. And so now, because of Sharon's recommendation, I'm going to write a book called <laughs> Not Funny and Farsi. <laughs> That's funny. So you're six years old. You've arrived in a new country that you weren't really planning to, like you just, you weren't, you weren't planning to be here. What is, what's that first day of school like where you're walking into a new building? Well, you know, that's one of the reasons, Yeah, one of the reasons I'm very much a advocate for immigrants is because I think many immigrants come to America not intending to, they're running away from some some danger back home. So whether it's Syrian refugees or it's people leaving Central America because of gangs or whatever, or even better opportunities. No, there very rarely do you have somebody in their home country doing well, having opportunities, loving life, and saying, "Let's get up and move somewhere where we're not going to be wanted by half the population." So I, yeah, we we left revolution turmoil and we came to America. Now I was six years old. So as a six year old, again, my father had been a successful businessman back in Iran. So when he was mm-hmm. in New York, he was staying in a suite at the Plaza Hotel, wow. which was right across the street Fancy. from FA. Yeah, it was right across yeah. from FAO Schwartz, which was the biggest toy store in the world. Yeah. And so when I first got to America, I'm going, oh, wow, I'm in this suite. I get to <laughs> this order. This is America. Yeah. yeah, this is America. I was ordering like desserts. <laughs> I was there with my sister. We'd order strawberries with whipped cream from room service. There was a lot more cartoons on TV than there were. I mean, Iran had cartoons, but maybe like a half an hour. America already back then had like four hours. And uh, FAO Shorts was across the street and I didn't have to go to school. I was just hanging out with my mom and going shopping and play with my sister. So out the gate, America was fantastic. It was working for me. And then we ended up in Marin, Northern California, and I went to school. And I think a couple of things that helped me was I was pretty good at sports. I think that helped me blend in a little bit. And then I, you know, there were cultural mistakes along the way, little things. Like, for example, we had a third grade, we had something called pizza day where the class was going to make pizza. So everyone was assigned an ingredient. So I got assigned sausages bring sausages so we can make sausage pizza so i went shopping with my mom at the grocery store to get sausages now in persian the word sosis means hot dog Mm. and so my mom's at the store with my aunt and neither one of them are fluent english speakers and they're going sausage sosis you need sosis so they gave me a six pack of hot dogs or whatever it was or 12 pack whatever i don't know how many comes in a hot dog pack but i go to school the the opposite amount of how many come in a hot dog bun pack Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I go to school and I'm supposed to have sausages and I got a pack of hot dogs. And of course, all the third graders are like, that's not a sausage, that's a hot dog. And I'm like, no, this is sausage, it's sausage. And they're like, no, it's not. I'm like, yeah, yeah. And then they're like laughing. Aha, he brought hot dogs. And I'm like, no, I didn't. These are sausages. And I'm going home to my mom like, I told you, sausage is not a hot dog. And so oh. just silly and stupid stuff. So there was some of that going on. And then I also recall there was a fight. I got in a fight with one kid. It was one of the only fights I think I've ever gotten in. And we were wrestling to the point where the bell rang and I was still wrestling the kid and we were still wrestling. Some teacher came out and was like, what are you guys doing? And we're like, oh, whatever. I forget what the reason was. And they're like, go clean up and go back to class. And I, that was around the time of the hostage crisis. So I don't know, but I assume it might have had something to do with him saying something to me about being Iranian or the hostage crisis or 
or the rev- something. I, I I can only assume it had something to do with that. It could have been as innocuous as like, oh, you took the ball. But I'm pretty sure that if it was going that long, it was a little more personal. And so there must have been some comments back then. And then it was slightly later when I was in the fourth grade, and then I had six, there were sixth graders in the school. And back then they would call you fucking Iranians. And so wow. I remember a sixth grader called me a fucking Iranian. And then, yeah, that was, that was kind of. Uh, How did you internalize right. that? Cause like, I mean, I got the, I grew up in the South where there's a special kind of racism and how, I don't remember it's. Kids are stupid. It's not just kids can be racist, but you know, they don't differentiate. So that it was the, the towel head, the camel stuff, the sand N word. Like, I guess the question is sometimes you go along with some of it, some of it's hurtful and you bring it home. How did you process that? Did you bring it home and say, whoa, mom, dad, why do they not like Iranians? What's going I don't on? recall. You know, it's not like you're following the news. Yeah. I don't recall having those conversations with my parents. I, and also I think in my mind, my parents were like fresh off the boat types and I was yeah, a little more yeah, yeah. hip. You're trying so to I'm fit pretty in. Sure, yeah, I'm pretty sure I didn't tell them. I just probably internalized it and I was like, okay, whatever. Hopefully the guy won't call me that tomorrow. And there was a couple other friends I had at the school. There weren't that many Iranians at my school. There was a handful, mm-hmm. but one of them was my friend and he was just a big troublemaker regardless. So I think mm-hmm. he used to get the brunt of it a lot more. Just, I mean, he was just a smart ass. So mm-hmm. maybe that made me go, okay, well, they'll just pick on him and leave me alone. So yeah, it was it was a little bit of like I wasn't taking the hostages, so I didn't really again, I was I was trying <laughs> to blend in. I played baseball, I played soccer, I had a lot I would bring candy to school and like pass out candy to different friends, which I made me realize I learned how to bribe my way into friendships early on. Life but, skill. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's a good <laughs> good way. To, yeah, you gotta bribe the right people. So yeah, it was, I don't recall ever talking to my mom or dad about it. I, I've asked my mom later what my dad used to say. And I, my dad was born in- Because I would in imagine Nor- people would say that to him in the world. Yeah, the so he was, born store, in, right? he was born in Northern Iran, which is a city called Tabriz, which mm-hmm. they are ethnically Turkish. So I think my mom said like he would just tell people he's Turkish and people would leave him alone. Like, mm-hmm. like and, and my dad, by the way, was a larger than life kind of character. He was loud. He was a, he was a businessman. He was a self-made millionaire. So he kind of was like a big like dude. And so I don't know if like random people were coming up to him and yelling that at him. But I think in order to avoid having to explain his allegiances and and how he left Iran, fled Iran, because he was afraid that he'd been successful under the Shah's regime. He had had friends who were mayors and generals mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. So he could have, if he'd remained in Iran, his life could have been in danger. Because at the time, the mm-hmm. Khomeini regime was going after it was anybody. A purge. It was a purge. Yeah, it was a purge. They were executing a lot of people. So rather than getting into that lengthy conversation, I think he'd just be like, oh, I'm Turkish. And they'd be like, oh, cool. <laughs> all right. We like Turkey. <laughs> what did you want to be when you grew up? Gosh, at first, I think I fell in love with baseball. I wanted to be a professional baseball huh. player. Yeah. And I remember telling my dad about that. And he was like, well, let's try and get you a coach and let's see what that... But then I think quickly he was like, no, that's not going to happen. And then... <laughs> <laughs> and then I think I I was always I was never your standard immigrant kid. I mean, I would say standard I mean, most immigrant kids want fun stuff as well, but I think at a certain point immigrant kids start to really feel the weight of their parents and they're like, "Well, I guess I'll just be a doctor or whatever yeah. that parent wanted." But once yeah. I got into at, at the age of 12, junior high school, I did some plays and really fell in love with being on stage. And then so in high school, I was in a good acting program and I said I wanted to be an actor. And I remember that was happening and my dad was talking to me and and basically trying to tell me like, in his eyes, he's like, son, we, you will never make it in Hollywood. We are not Jewish. <laughs> I was like, I don't know if that's, that's, that's all that's required, dad. He's like, well, that's what I'm told or whatever. <laughs> so he, he was... He was trying to discourage me from trying to get into acting because we had no idea. I think if you tell any parent, I want to be an actor or comedian, they don't know. So yeah, I wanted to be originally a baseball player and then then an actor and a comedian. I loved Eddie Murphy. I wanted to be Eddie Murphy. Wow. Well, the thing I've noticed about my, my friends and our guests who are from the entertainment field specifically, 
comics and actors is it's almost like through the course of your career, you have this superpower of code switching. The rest of us have to like grow it as a survival mechanism. And honestly, I would imagine there was some of that as an Iranian immigrant kid, right? Sharon as a Chinese girl, me as an Indian boy. But I guess as you were coming up and starting to pursue, like we, we know the story of your growth, but in comedy, in acting, did you find that there were moments where, I don't know, you kind of had to change who you were to kind of fit in or to stand out better? Gosh, I wasn't, um, I was not consciously changing things in the hope of like, oh, I hope they see me like this, hope they see me like that. I just came in. I mean, I, I again, when I did plays in junior high school and high school, I got to play Little Abner. He's mm. some Southern dude. I got to play Batman. I got to do all kinds <laughs> of parts. And I was like, oh, wow, this is cool. I'll be an actor and I get to play everything. And then I came to Hollywood and when I started first, when I first started, it was like, oh, I got a guest star on a, a TV show where I was a security guard. Before that, I was an independent movie where I was like a guy in college. Like that's all, all it was. And then quickly it was like, oh, you're Middle Eastern. Well, then you should go. We have an audition for a terrorist part. And then right. that was early. And, and I did a couple of those and I quickly realized I don't want to do terrorist parts. So I just stopped doing terrorist parts. But I continued to do the accent parts because I was a fan of Peter Sellers and I love doing accents. And, I've, and I did Indian characters and I did Iranian characters. I did Arab characters. I did all kinds of characters trying my best to do the accent correctly. But now, 20 years, 20 something years in and the world we're living in, trying to do less parts that require an accent and more parts that will allow me to be me and sometimes that happens, sometimes it happens, it doesn't. Like just last year, and these are coming out now, I, I did a, a part, a guest star part, Ed Helms and Randall Park have a new show on Peacock TV called True Story. And it's where just real life people are telling their stories and then actors act out those stories. Well, the story I got to be a part of was this girl who moved from Egypt to Alabama and her father was a Libyan man who had been living in Egypt. So that character requires an accent. So I did that character with an accent. And that's, mm -hmm. that said, I also got a chance last year to do a guest star on a show that'll come out later this year where I play a high school principal. And I, the name, I forget his name. It was, it was like Principal Young. Like it was like... Chris Young or something has nothing to do with my ethnicity. So I was like, all right, that's cool. And I, and I talk like this. So yeah, I think that's some of the stuff you try to keep an eye on. And then stand up is also interesting because stand up is stand up allows you to go do the terrorist part in the Chuck Norris movie of the week that I did and then go on stage and make fun of it. It allows you to kind of call them out on it, on doing these, make creating these parts. And then also, make fun of yourself for agreeing to do these parts. So that's the beauty of stand-up. It's like you're your own creative person and your own boss, and you can say whatever you want. Well, it's also like with some of those parts, like you talk about the Randall Park shows, where is it coming from? And not just like who's the writer, oh, is it a person of color? But it's like, is there a sensitivity and an understanding? So it sounds like that show is trying to explain something right? To show an authenticity to something versus painting a character, right? The, Absolutely. Uh, Even when yeah. I was on a show called Superior Donuts on CBS. And yeah, yeah, I remember that. You were Iraqi on the show though, right? Yeah, yeah. It was an Iraqi immigrant. And again, on that, I fought to have him be Iranian, but they really wanted Iraqi. I don't know why, but I had an accent. I played basically like the nemesis of the Judd Hirsch character who owned the donut shop, Judd Hirsch and, and, and Jermaine Fowler. But the character himself was part of the crew. He was accepted at this donut shop. He would come in, he'd get his donut, he'd leave. And I would get a lot of messages from people going, oh my God, I loved the, the character's name was Foz. And they were like, I, oh my, I really enjoyed Foz in this episode. They gave me a lot of funny lines to say. I was kind of like, for people from my era, there's the Carla character in Cheers or the, or the Louis De Palma character in Taxi, kind of the the curmudgeon who gets to say funny things. So it was it was fun. And, and in my mind, I'm going, okay, this is CBS. It's got a pretty broad, know, a, broad. Yeah, broad audience. And I go, if, if people are able to watch this guy and laugh with the lines he's saying, I go, then that's a way of getting 
into their good graces in a way to go, oh, look, there's actually characters who are from this part of the world who are funny. So again, that character to me was still, I was fine doing that character. And there was times when the writers had written something that like referenced Iraq in in a savage way almost. And I had to bring mm-hmm. it to their attention and go, guys, we got to change that. I'm not going to say that line. So that was, that was a good thing to, to be able to do. But I still am striving towards being able to be on screen and do something close to me. I'm striving towards that even more. A lot of entertainers in the space describe TV as like a writer's medium, films a director's medium, and the stage is kind of the performer's medium. And I think that applies to Broadway comedy. You said earlier, you're on you're your own boss. But I guess when you're an actor on a show and you're having to go back to the writers and say something, it's the writer's medium. And it's like... <sighs> This isn't on you specifically, but if you've got a part on a show, you feel lucky to have it. You don't want to rock the boat. And so, and you're an established presence, right, in the space. So you probably can walk back to the actor. But I mean, do you notice a difference in a receptivity over the years where people are willing to take the notes on, hey, that's not cool, that thing you're doing about Iraqis, Iranians versus. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think it all depends on the relationship. Who's the showrunner? Like you said, how big mm-hmm. are they? Who are you? If you're doing a one-day guest star, it might be hard for you to go on and go, hey, Mr. whatever, guru of television. I don't want to say that line. Now, <laughs> He's an Indian guy. It's a, it's a South Indian last week. Exactly. <laughs> now, if you – but if you come with a good explanation, there's some, I think they're willing to listen. I mean, even if – I've had times – listen, I did a I, – I played a Secret Service agent in a movie called The Interpreter in, in 2004. Mm-hmm. It was Sean Penn, Nicole Kidman, directed by Sidney Pollack, who – is a legend. And there was a scene, it had nothing to do with ethnicity or anything. There was just a scene where there was a line written and it didn't make sense. And I think it was kind of partially because of the timing. Like I'd just been somewhere and I knew about this thing. And then in the next line, when I, the way, the, the way I say the line, it indicates I didn't know what I was talking about before. So even though I was not, I wasn't Sean I wasn't Nicole Kidman. I wasn't Catherine Keener, who was the third lead. I, I was just, I was one of the actors and I was nervous even talking to him, but I did go to him and go, Hey, Sydney, can I talk to you for a second? He's like, yeah, what is it? And I go, listen, when I say this, this, and this, I just did that. So it doesn't even make sense. And he's like, what? You're right. And then he kind of went with me and he appreciated that. So I think as actors, we've got to be open and available to do that. So especially if you're an actor from a certain part of the world and you see something that is offensive or inappropriate, then they want to be told, hey, before we do this thing, I'm from this background, this is what I'm seeing. And then they can say, no, just do it. And then you have a choice to make, right? Mm -hmm. But I think they're pretty open to it. I think in my case, the situation was something where they, I had to explain to them a little bit. And I think Mm -hmm. they, as comedy writers, because that's the other thing, you're not just running into just a writer, you're running into a comedy writer who's like, oh my God, that's a great joke. And right. now you're going up to him going like, this is a great joke, but it, it is, it's offensive to this community. So mm-hmm. let's do something else. I'm like, oh, come on, really? And you're like, I, I'm telling you. And then, trust and then my spidey sense here. Yeah. Trust yeah. me, spidey sense. Trust my spidey sense. And then also there's the showrunner. Like you could talk to him as well and go, listen, dude, uh, this writer that wrote this thing, I'm telling him this. He's not seeing me. I'm telling you now. Hmm. And then you have the final thing of, of again, depending on where you are. And I was, like you said, I was at a point in my career where I could say, look, guys, I'm just, I'm not going to say this. So come up with something else. And yeah. then they did. Something you've spoken about in material on your podcast is not just your faith or your faith-ish, your Muslim-ish, right? Mm-hmm. But I, I want to dig into that a little bit because it's it's something I, I hold and I really think a, a lot about. And I've, I've heard conversations that you and Tehran have, have talked about. But more importantly, like this, the world tends to kind of equate Arabs and Islam together. Where <laughs> in reality, like Islam exists around the world. And it's like, you can be Arab or you can be Middle Eastern and be of Muslim origin, just like you can be a white or a black person in America and not be like a, a, 
born again Christian, right? And how yeah. how do you kind of thread that needle with ex- people's expectations of you? Like, oh, he's the Muslim comic. You're like, yeah, Muslimish. Like, can you I, can you explain how you explain that to people? Yeah, I try to avoid labels. People try to label you all the time. People say he's my favorite Persian comic. He's a, he's yeah, a funny yeah. Iranian comedian. I go, no, I'm a comedian who happens to be. Persian or happens to be mm-hmm. Iranian American, et cetera. I try to avoid that because the truth is, if you come see me at the comedy store or the Laugh Factory, I'm on a lineup with multi different ethnicities and guy, women, men, you name it. I mean, everything. Where it's a mix, and the audience is a mix, and I still doing well in that crowd because it's just stand up comedy, and it's my point of view. And it's not, I'm not an Iranian comedian. I'm not up there going like, oh, Iranian, Iranian, Iranian the whole time. I do have bits about being Iranian. I do have bits about my parents being an immigrant, all that stuff. But that said, I just try to really drive home the point that I am an immigrant first and and not. So, but you bring you bring your immigrant identity into the identity though. Yeah, I do. I talk about it, but I also will do jokes about my experience through COVID and I'll do my ex- jokes mm-hmm. about my kids. And so there's mm-hmm. a lot of jokes, but- all of that said, the thing with, with religion was interesting because I didn't grow up religious. I mean, nobody yeah, in my family, yeah. I mean, we had relatives who weren't in my immediate family who were more religious, but in my family, we come from Iran. Iran is a Shiite Muslim country. Mm-hmm. My mom mm-hmm. used to put a pendant around my neck that was an Allah, which is like supposed to protect you in God's eyes. And upon reflection, I come to find out that they were probably more superstitious than religious like they would say say hello akbar whatever it is and my grandmother would say things like if you say one of these before you drive you'll you won't get in a car accident like say you know god bless or whatever so it's it's that kind of stuff so i realized okay we're not really religious nobody in my family was praying five times a day and saving up to go to mecca that just wasn't our family so because of that i i actually also in an effort to not disappoint the muslim community like i Originally, when I first came out, I would talk about being Muslim somewhat. And then I realized I drink. I don't pray. I don't pray. I'm not trying to go to Mecca. I accidentally went to Mecca because I was doing a tour nearby and I did. I went there. <laughs> but all that said, I, I didn't want Muslims then to come. And I was, I'm also very progressive. So I'm like mm-hmm. pro-gay marriage. I'm pro-abortion, <laughs> all that stuff. So I was like, I don't want some Muslims to then come and be like, oh, you presented yourself as a Muslim. And you are drinking and you believe gay marriage is okay. And I was like, all right, then I'm just going to say I'm Muslim-ish because <laughs> yeah. I fit the profile if you start the looking culture, at- The culture, if not the faith and the religion. The culture and also the way that Americans would maybe see it and be like, oh, whatever. Well, I, I think that's an important notion because Muslim-ish, so much of what you do, I mean, the tradition and the faith, it's a Middle Eastern Muslim-ish, you know? Yeah, like, exactly. Like, yeah. Because yeah. mm-hmm. people really forget that like, Islam's pretty big, and I, and I was raised Hindu. I'm an atheist, but like, it is a massive world religion that just is dominant in the Middle East, but it's dominant in Southeast Asia and parts yeah, of America. Also, yeah. Americans are dumb, and it's not just—they <laughs> are. I, they, yes, I agree. No, I agree. I agree. No, I agree. Americans are dumb, and I'll throw myself in there. I am yes. very ignorant about other people's cultures because we are isolated. We're in this island on our own. It's mm-hmm. huge. Mm-hmm. We don't have to learn about anybody else, and our curriculum doesn't teach about anybody else. And then you get a guy like Governor DeSantis going, oh, I want to pass a law where if any there's anything taught that makes a white person feel uncomfortable, that you can parents can request that to be stopped from being taught. And I want to yeah, be like- Yeah, we're selective because we're rich and powerful and on an island. But it's we like- but it's no, but it's like, kit- but why wouldn't you want? That's my problem. Is like I'm like, listen, motherfucker. How like how much people of color were demonized growing up, and like if if I had a yeah. chance to raise my hands and be like, hey, teacher, stop talking about the hostage crisis. Hey, teacher, stop talking about terrorists. Hey, teacher, stop talking about brown people that way. Yeah. Or hey, kids, stop. Then, then I'd be living in denial. History and geography is a lot bigger than we make it. And therefore, you end up with a bunch of idiots in this country who go, oh, because there's a mosque down the street, that means Sharia. Yeah. They're trying to bring Sharia law to our neighborhood, yeah. mm. and we need to burn it down. I mean, it's like, well, really, I, dude? I think representation, like, I'm I'm all in the camp of representation. I need a little Muslim girl to see Kamala Khan, a little black boy like my nephew who's half black and Sharon's half black kids to see Miles Morales. Like you need that. But what you also need, so my daughter's half Chinese, Chinese New Year's is coming up as we record this. I want my daughter to feel included and represented. 
but I need all those other kids that aren't Chinese to know that this is a big normal thing so you can get away from just the stereotypes. Does that make sense? Like, I think white kids need to know about Ramadan. If that Absolutely. Makes sense. I mean, that's right. why yeah. the, this whole thing of like, oh, critical race theory, critical yeah, race exactly. theory is just, it's history. So yeah. you're saying, oh, let's, let's just yeah. gloss yeah. over the whole race, yeah. the, the whole slavery thing. Let's jump right to that part where we, whatever, I don't know. Well, okay, gives other, a speech, Barack Obama's president, we're all happy. Yeah. And it's so yeah. stupid. Like yeah. we should yeah. want, like if I, even if I'm a, a, a parent of white kids, I want my white kids who are living in privilege, let's say, because not all white kids are living in privilege. A lot of them mm-hmm. aren't. A lot of them live in sure. poverty. So, but if I'm living like the perfect, perfect life, I want my kids to know that there was good and bad, that there's blood on the hands of this country. And hope, and that's the only way we learn and move forward. And the next time there's a, a war pending, we go, no, we don't want to get into war with another country that we have no business getting into war with. So I don't understand this thinking. It's really, you know, getting in uh, on your side and mm-hmm. your team and really just trying to present your team in a way of like, oh, it's all, it's only national anthems at football games. That's all we mm-hmm. do. We do football games, national anthems, and we root for our players and our players are all pro America and all of the, and everybody is rooting for the soldiers. And it's just like, really like that's, we've done it. America does a good job of brainwashing a lot of people. These, yeah. the, all you got to do is watch an army ad and it's like, be in the army and you will you know, walk up a mountain and the eagle will fly over your head. <laughs> Meanwhile, it's like, no, you're going to end up with PTSD and killing people with beards <laughs> right, for no reason. Right. So this is a great country. They're great at marketing and they've marketed this fantastic make America great again bullshit. And that's where, again, well, I... Well, the, bra- the brain is more Team America versus United Colors of Benetton, you know? Exactly. And the truth is, in my mind, I mean, and, and, and whatever statistics show, we're headed towards United Colors of Benetton. So you yeah. better either get on board right. or you're going to be outnumbered in, in a civil war for 100 years. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. What? We've made it, dude. I mean, I love all of our sponsors equally, but I love some more equally. (laughs) Yeah, Sharon, not only is this sponsor a big deal, it's actually about a topic that you and I are both super, super passionate about, COVID prevention. Yeah, you're right, dude. We're more than two years in, and as a country, we're still dealing with COVID-19. This is something we can't help but keep in mind in our day-to-day lives at home and work, especially for those of us with immunocompromised people in our lives, our kids, our parents, and even all of our friends' kids and parents. And we want to make sure all of you, our super smart, savvy, and good-looking listeners of this pod, are vaccinated and boosted. And that you're encouraging all of the folks in your lives to do so, too. This AAPI Heritage Month, we can honor our AANHPI heritage communities and families today by getting vaccinated for a safer tomorrow. Wait, Roman, I thought it was just AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander. What's the NH in AANHPI stand for? Uh, it's Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander. Oh, snap. We got to get some of them on this podcast. Hmm. I think we need to go on location to record a chat with some Native Hawaiian guests in their Native Hawaiian islands. I'll settle for any Pacific Islands. <laughs> True that. But wait, hang on. Uh, what are we talking about again? We're talking about making sure we're all vaccinated. <laughs> and boosted. And boosted. For serious, look, vaccinations greatly reduce your chance of having COVID symptoms like fatigue, pain, and memory problems that last for months. You know, beyond getting sick, long COVID is one of the COVID symptoms that really concerns me. I can barely keep everything going as it is. COVID is serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we are both parents with young kids and aging parents, so COVID is no joke. So we all have to do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and the communities we work and live in. Protect your tomorrow with a vaccine today. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective, and free. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. And now back to our show. So you mentioned something a little while ago, and I just want to bring it back because I'm just so curious. You were talking about leaving your baby brother back in Iran. 
And I'm wondering how that, like, what happened there? Did you, when did you finally reunite? Have you um, reunited so, with him? And, and, and how did that whole thread happen? Well, what happened was when he was left, there was a baby and we had a nanny that he was very close with. And we have grandmothers and other relatives yeah. nearby, aunts. So I think I've, I've tried to play this timing in my head. I think that, so we came late 78. And then at that time, my mom was pregnant with my youngest brother now, who was born in July of 79. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, gosh, my other brother came out right around that same time. We were able to get him out with an aunt or somebody who flew here with him. And he came. And I think it, when he first came, he was probably a little distance from us because he's a toddler. I think at the time he was maybe around two. So he'd been away from us for six months and been with his nanny and all that. So I'm mm-hmm. sure at first mm-hmm. he was distanced. And then eventually we were all reunited. And and yeah, I'm sure it was hard for my mom. It was hard for my dad. I was a kid. It was it was hard for all of us because we weren't even, we, when we first came here, we weren't even like, it wasn't like, oh, there's the house, go move in, live. It's right. it, First, we were right. in New York for about a month. And it was the coldest winter New York had seen in a long time. And we started looking for homes there. And then my mom was like, this place is too cold. And then my dad had <laughs> friends. Yeah. And then my dad had friends out in Reno. So we went and stayed with his friends in Reno. And then my dad was a big gambler. So we ended up at the MGM Grand Hotel in Reno. Wow. He's gambling and they're giving him, they, they, they call it the a penthouse whale. suite there too, yeah, right? Yeah, they're giving yeah. us suites. And then, and then yeah. that's You're having a really he, good first couple months are. in America. I know. Geez. Nice little video run games. you had there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, video games in the arcade while my dad's gambling hundreds of thousands of dollars away. And then, and then because they gave him all these free suites, he invited some friends of his that were living in Marin County to come stay with us. And those friends came and stayed. And then those friends said, hey, why don't you come stay with us? And Mm -hmm. that's when we ended up going to Marin. And my dad was like, oh, this is kind of cool place. We'll rent a house. And we rented a house a few doors down from them. And then it was like, okay, now get enrolled in school. And then my mom was like, well, you guys have missed half the year. And I just think you should skip ahead a grade. So she threw us Instead of starting in whatever it was, first grade, she just put us right in it. I went right to second grade. My sister went right to whatever it was, fourth grade or whatever. And so it was a lot of wow. looking back on it. If I had a therapist, I would say there was a lot of turmoil going on. It wasn't a lot of solid ground at that point. Yeah. I'm just, I'm happy to hear that you guys were all back together again, though, like within yeah. within six months to a year. In my, I, in my I mind, was I was to like, ask. I was, <laughs> I'm anyway. like, maybe it's 10 years, maybe it was 20 years before you finally were in the room together. But that's, I'm glad it all worked out that way. Well, thank you. Yes, yes. What's interesting, though, is I, I when you said it at the beginning, I was afraid to ask because I didn't know what happened. I have Iranian friends whose families have been separated for years. Because when immigration policy happens, stuff's happening in Ukraine, and we've seen things happen, travel bans, etc. It's just like these things have human impacts on lives. And back then, my dad brought over so much of the family. It sounds like your younger brother came over with, with relatives. That's harder to do now. You said about when people leave and they make the choice to leave, it's... It's, it's harder to leave. I mean, yes, we have the technology to stay connected, but when you leave, sometimes it's a one-way door with some of the countries. Well, that's why that whole travel ban that Trump implemented, yeah. that was just, it was funny because during the elections, he said, oh, I'm going to implement a Muslim ban. And then and then his supporters would say, no, no, he's not going to actually do it. How would he do it? There's no way to do it. You can't just do a Muslim ban. Then he gets in and a week later, he does a Muslim ban, basically. Yeah. And then and then they go to court, they come back and back and forth. And eventually they're like, okay, fine, we won't call it a Muslim ban. We'll just call it ban of a lot of people from Muslim countries. But the day it happened, it was implemented so poorly. Even the implementation, mm-hmm. they didn't even say, hey, June 1st, four months from now, we're going to do this thing. So if anyone's got visas they got to tie up or if they've got relatives that need to come, do it now. You've got four months. They did it like they announced it while people were in the air. So people landed at LAX. I had a guy contact me because a lot of people were asking me to use my voice to try and amplify it. And so I had a guy, he's like, yeah, my parents just landed from Iran. They actually went from Dubai or Abu Dhabi. They landed at LAX. They're older. They don't know what they're doing. And the immigration folks had them sign a piece of paper. And that piece of paper waived their right to their visa so they got mm. back on a plane. They, they put them back on a plane and sent them back to 
back to Dubai or wherever they came from. And so that was happening left and right. NPR did a piece on a Syrian family who had been in a um, refugee camp somewhere Mm -hmm. for like two years or something and gone through the whole process. Trump kept saying extreme vetting, extreme vetting. We already had extreme vetting. These people get vetted for two years. This family had been vetted and they had been permitted to come to America. And then they had sold all their stuff and gotten ready to get moving. And then the ban happened. So they were stuck. There was all kinds of, here's, here's one of the other crazy ones. I, I had this, this one come to me. This lady was, she was American and she meets an Iranian guy in India. They're studying in India and they fall in love. They get married. And then they are told that you need to go to Turkey, which is the closest embassy, I think, the closest, because I guess, was it the Iranian embassy? They had to go somewhere to get their get, get the citizenship for the husband, I guess. So yeah, so, so they had to go to an American embassy in Turkey to get the citizenship. She goes, we flew to Turkey to get his citizenship so that he's allowed to come to America with her. And, he, and she goes, when we get there, there's a travel ban for Iranians. So Iranians aren't allowed to come to America. And then she goes, to reciprocate, Iran said they're going to implement a travel ban on Americans coming into Iran. So hmm. she goes, so I can't go to Iran. He can't come to America. We're stuck in a hotel room in Turkey and waiting for results. And I was like, holy moly, it's like a play. It's like stuck yeah. in a room kind of a thing. So yeah, very, very serious human repercussions. People were missing parents' funerals. There was all kinds of stuff happening. And all these people who speak the rhetoric that they speak, they just, they, they really don't. They don't have that human that. empathy for, for the real toll. Not at all. And then you ask, like, I remember Trump was being interviewed after the fact of like, well, why did you implement it as such a poor way? Why did it happen so quickly and so last minute? And then his stupid response is, oh, well, that's what the law enforcement people told me to do because they had said that if we gave it time, then the terrorists who wanted to come would have had time to prepare to come. And I'm going, hey, listen, dum-dum. First of all, you're, he, he constantly was throwing people under the bus. So mm-hmm. that was just another indication of him not taking, the buck did not stop with him. He was like, well, other people told me to do this. And secondly, the whole point of a terrorist is that they're criminals. A terrorist will figure out a way, <laughs> right? Exactly, to, exactly. To make, to make a fake passport and come through another border. Terrorists aren't like, oh, we only have three months to go. Let's get, get it, you know, let's get in there now. <laughs> let's file our paperwork. Let's, let's do file our paperwork. Oh. God, what an idiot. Well, so it's, you're kind of getting into territory of the types of conversations you have on your podcast. And that's a couple through some mutual friends. I've been following your career, following your work. But then three years ago, you launched a podcast, right? And I want to talk about Back to School because, one, the show is great. You talk to and nerd out with people you want to talk to and people I love, right? Like, yeah. be it uh, Reza Aslan or just... The folks you talk to are people I want to nerd out with. It's not like, oh, I'm a comedian. I'm going to talk to my comedian friends. And you do that every once in a while. But it's like, no, I want to know stuff. But the origin of the show is, I don't even want to, can you explain the origin of the show, why you decided to do this show? Because it really like touches my heart into why Sharon and I do our show. Yeah, the origin of the show came about because my kids at the time, now they're 10 and 13. But when we first started, there were, what was it, seven or eight or something like that, eight and 10. They would ask me questions that I just didn't have the answers to. And I thought, well, rather than Googling stuff, let me try and bring experts on and we'll talk to them and learn from them. And we'll try to make that learning fun and laugh and go from there. So every episode starts with a question that's asked by one of my kids. And I'll say, for example, I had a guy named Frank Figluzzi on. He's great. He's a former uh, FBI deputy director or something like that for counterterrorism. So I tell my son, I go, yeah, this guy deals with used to now he's an analyst, but he used to be in the FBI counterterrorism. And I go, I go, what's your question for him? And he goes, oh, ask him if he's ever shot somebody. And I go, okay, that's a good question to ask. I mean, that's a good question a boy, a ten year old or eleven year old boy would ask. So that's where we started. And then his answer was very thoughtful. Frank's answer is actually in my whatever it was many years at the FBI, I never had to shoot anybody because they taught us how to de-escalate. Uh, confrontation. And then he goes on and says, that's really something that's 
missing in the training of police in America. Because a lot of times police are hired and there's not enough funding to to Mm -hmm. train them on de-escalation. And that's why we end up with so many people just getting shot. And so it led to an interesting conversation. And so, like you said, I, a lot of times I just bring people that interest me and, and we talk to them and it's been all, it's run the gamut from athletes. We talked to Ricky Williams about Mm -hmm. his experience with cannabis and all that stuff, all the way to just, he had a lot of uh, enlightening. I mean, he told his story, here's a story he told that was really interesting. He goes, because we asked, I asked him, when did you first discover weed? And he said, my, I think it was his senior year in, foot, in in college football, he was University of Texas, if I'm not mistaken. And he had, he said, my ex-girlfriend was dating the quarterback and it really just like was in my mind, in my head. And I had a game and he goes, that game, I had a horrible game. I, I rushed like 60 yards and it was just horrible. And he goes, so I go home and I'm with my roommate and I'm just in my head and I'm having a horrible time. My roommate's like, listen, dude, you need to get high. So he's like, we got high and we watched Blazing Saddles, I think, or some movie. <laughs> and he goes, got my mind off it. And he goes, like the next three games, I think, he's like, I ran for 300 yards a game. And it was like, it just his chakras had been opened up and he, and he just, <laughs> and he won the Heisman Trophy that year. So a lot of interesting stories to be told. And so it's just an excuse to talk to interesting people. And the questions always start from the kids. I love that. I love that. So much curiosity. Built yeah. Into it. What do your kids think about what you do, Maz, as an entertainer and performer? They have really been into it because they've had a chance to... I, I have been fortunate enough to be able to base some of my traveling around their summer vacations. So mm, yeah. I did the Montreal Comedy Festival and took them with me a couple times. I did two tours now in Australia and one in Asia, took them with me. So they've really had a chance to travel a lot. They've seen me perform. I think they really enjoy watching me perform and they're very proud to see, oh my God, that's my dad getting all that attention and then they are fans of comedy themselves they love saturday night live matter of fact i ran into michael che whom i know from stand-up at caroline's in new york and he was doing the show after me and i was like listen man i gotta tell you my kids love you and i go i I think they love you more than they love me and i'm like can you do a video (laughs) so he was he was funny about it but there's that slight moment of jealousy like when they're like oh i watched joe coy or something or whoever it is and then you go oh this is great i want them to be fans of comedy so they are and and i hope they nerd out like that i find whatever it is that can keep them creative and and straight on that path of creating and i don't care what they end up doing but i'd rather have them be doing that than be coming home and being like hey dad i really i i I, whatever give me money you need to buy me a tesla dad i'm 16 years old (laughs) i deserve a tesla i'll be like shut the hell up go write something what so like sharon and me you're married to someone that is not does not look like you how did how does your wife, it's kind of the same question, but like, how does that dynamic work? Because the the cult, my wife and I have a lot in common, but there's very different cultural stereotypes at play in our household. And I know I can say this definitively. My observation is the same as in Sharon's house. Is that fair? Sure. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> how does that work with you? <laughs> you know, it's actually, it's interesting because coming from the backgrounds we came from, she was born in India, left when she was six months old. And, and I think I have a respect for her parents that Maybe someone who didn't come from an immigrant background might be Mm -hmm. a little more Mm -hmm. non-understanding of parents. Like I probably am more of an advocate for her parents. I'll be like, you need to, we need to respect your parents. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You're a good Indian son. You are such a good Indian son-in-law. Look at you. (laughs) Exactly. And, And so I think having come up from my background, it helps. And so there's a lot of things in common. I mean, we all, Iranians and Indians love rice. We love tea, family, all that stuff. So that all has helped. And there's some differences as well. I think the biggest difference for us is that I grew up in a family where, again, my father was, um, at the time, my father, I always compare him to like Vito Corleone from The Godfather. He had a lot of money, came to America, took care of a lot of people. And unfortunately, he ended up losing a lot of his money in just bad real estate investments. But I grew up pretty privileged in that sense. And my dad was larger than life. 
Her father was a dentist and her mother worked at the dental office. And then they're Christian. They're from the South. So they were very humble in many ways and maybe not as loud as my family was. So that's the mm. difference. But I think our similarities, our emphasis on education and all that other yeah. stuff is important. I mean, again, going back to that, like my wife is a, is a lawyer by by training and and so I, and I'm the comedian. So she probably had straight A's all the way th- through school. I had years where I just didn't do as well because I was goofing off. And so... I probably am a little more laxed about that kind of stuff than my wife would be. So the the, the differences aren't as cultural as they are in our. Are you are you the fun parent? Are you the fun parent to moms? Moms the mean a parent? little bit, but she's pretty good. She's she'll do things like they're watching Gilmore Girls all together, and they're like, they like she's 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 the in charge of like when they get treats. I mean, I I want to get them treats, but then I get in trouble when I get them treats. So I'm like, all right, then you just get <laughs> you're them. an irresponsible treat giver. I would imagine exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. So if we were to reverse time and we'd go back all the way back to the Plaza Hotel across from FAO Schwartz, and if we were to talk to that little boy who's in New York for the first time, what's a, what's some advice you'd give to your younger self? Oh, gosh. What is some advice? You, by the way, you got a good therapist voice, Sharon. You should get Thank into you. therapy. Thank um, you. Bill's in the mail. Yeah. Talking to that boy, I mean, I, I, I recall that boy being very happy and, and enjoying what was going on. And maybe one of the things I would say to him is continue to be happy, but also as you get older, just realize that you can do whatever you want in life. And if you really love it, just do it. Because I think some of the challenges came a little bit later when I was in high school. And even though I finally ended up where I ended up, there were several years where I did feel like, oh, I need to go be a lawyer or whatever. And and I was trying to please my parents, right? So really, I would say just just if you find what you love in the next few years, just do that and, and have fun and enjoy it. And, and these times are precious as a kid. Play, 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 which we did. I was really lucky. I mean, that's one of the things. It's like we lived in neighborhoods. Like my grandmother lived near us and she lived in an apartment complex where you just walk out in the street and hang out till the other kids came out and then we'd play stickball and play football. We'd mm-hmm. ride our bikes. And so I had a good childhood, man. I, I, um, no regrets on that. I love that. I love that. That's great advice. So Maz, we've covered so much and Roman and I would probably want to talk to you forever and ever and ever, but I think now's probably a good time to pivot to speed round. Are you ready for speed round? Let's do speed round. Let's do it. <laughs> What is one thing about you that no one expects? I could be pretty shy in some circumstances, uh, depending like if I, like if I'm go people, people at parties expect me to be joke telling guy. I'm not mm-hmm. joke telling guy. I got a lot of energy on stage. I could do stand up, but there's been times. That's the I've job. Been a, That's the job. Yeah. This, this one, <laughs> this one family once bid for me to be, to go have dinner with them. And I went and I think they expected like a funny guy. And I was just kind of sitting there very polite at the table. And I, I'm sure when I left, they were like, eh, it really wasn't worth it. <laughs> they thought they were buying an hour of entertainment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they didn't want to have a deep conversation no. on immigration policy. So. No. Nope. Nope. They didn't want none of that. Uh, what's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Gosh, I've always loved The Godfather, and I think mm. that not because I'm a mob boss, but rather the again Vito Corleone looked after people, mm. and if I could aspire to be someone, that would be it. And probably because he reminds me of my dad. My dad was very much like him. Like people would come to him and be like, "Hey, I'm having financial troubles, or I need something," or even they would. There's times like I've had people when my father passed away tell me things about. They had moved to America and had to flee and didn't have any money. And my dad went out of his way to be like, you will take money from me and pay me back whenever you can. But you have to like, you have to let me help you. So, yeah, I think Vito Corleone is a great character. What is your favorite mom dish? My mom didn't cook until oh. I grew up and moved out. Like, And similarly, when I married my wife, she didn't cook till we had kids. So nobody that's they say you marry your mom. I married my mom. 
But now, <laughs> now my wife cooks and she cooks some amazing stuff and she tries to cook healthy all the time. And thank God, because she's cooking for the kids, but I get to participate and I'm yeah. loving it. And my mom has come around and learned to cook as well. You know, usually if if it's my favorite, it would have to be a Persian dish. There's a Persian dish called Orme Sabzi, which is rice base with a broth on top that's kind of got a little bit of sourness, but it's got a lot of greens and vegetables and beans, and it's just delicious. Persian food is one of the best foods in the world. Yeah, yeah. that sounds delicious. Yeah. What's your least favorite food? Quiche. I don't like quiche. It's disgusting. Quiche. <laughs> Definitive. Wow. <laughs> yeah. All kinds of quiche. I don't like quiche. Don't like the texture. Don't like it. I ain't into it. Interesting. It's like my the hus- egg's trying too hard, right? Yeah. My, exactly. my husband's like, like, is this a pie? Like, is it a dessert? I'm like, no, yeah. it's a quiche. And he's like, I, yeah, he, he feels the same way. He'd agree yeah. with you on that. Who is someone out there that you'd want to interview on a podcast? Barack Obama. Yeah. Oh, come on. <laughs> you actually stand a chance at getting him, but okay. Yeah, man. <laughs> you should reach out. He would totally be on your podcast. Let's do it. <laughs> Maz, what does being a modern minority mean for you? Modern minority, I suppose somewhat evolved in our thoughts. I mean, because I guess, geez, I'm going to mix minority with immigrant because I'm an immigrant minority. I'm not a minority who's been here for several generations. And so Mm -hmm. a lot of immigrants who come from our parts of the world, whether it's Iran or India or China, they probably have conservative values And I would say modern minority or modern immigrant is somebody who has come to America and is a lot more progressive and kind of wants to, we're the ones who are telling our parents, mom, it's, it's okay if if your kids get tattoos, that's fine. It's not the end of the world. (laughs) We're that, we're those people. Your kids are totally going to play that clip back on you in a few years. So (laughs) I don't mind. Well, Maz, I, I just appreciate you spending the time with us, but just what you've been doing in the space and how you continue to evolve beyond a comic, beyond an actor, becoming an advocate, and honestly, just being curious and learning every week with us, for us. So thanks so much for spending the time and doing the work that you do, man. It means a lot to us. Thanks for being here, Moss. Thank you guys. And I'm looking forward to listening and have a wonderful day and stay modern, stay minority. Does that work? And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Hold. Potluck. Potluck.